Uh, 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 Podcast starts now. All right, welcome to the podcast. I, I mean, okay, let's... I don't know. Full disclosure here. I've discovered that I start pretty much every segment by saying, all right, so I'm trying to find other ways to just begin my sentences on new segments, so we'll see how that goes. Maybe I'll say some just truly bizarre things as we start, Um, but anyway, me trying to improve as a podcaster there. Uh, All right, today we have several segments to get to. I think I'm going to leave a few things till next time, like interviewing Super Bowl victors and things like that, Uh, because today we're going to go over the awards for the season, we're going to do a little playoff recap, and then we're going to talk about zone blocking and kind of the origins of zone blocking, because I know everybody was really interested in hearing that. So we're just going to get started and get going on the awards. So this year the MVP award was Lewis Calloway, I think that is his second in a row. I don't know how to look at his history, and I'd have to go back and find his player card. I'm not going to do that, but I believe he's won that more than once now, at least. Uh, So congratulations to him. And the coach of the year was Sean McVay for the Cowboys. I don't know what he did to earn that, but good for him. Uh, Let's see, AFC Awards Offensive Player of the Year was Callaway. Defensive Player of the Year was Mark Darden. No surprise there. He probably had 20-some sacks. Offensive Rookie of the Year, Ronald Henderson, receiver for the Browns. I believe he got fed the ball a lot. Defensive Rookie of the Year was for the Dolphins. Nobody cares. Best quarterback was Callaway. Best running back, Urban Bernie for the Chiefs. Congratulations. Hopefully he's uh, improving. Looks like he's an 85 overall and may be on his way to superstardom. Uh, Receiver of the Year was for the Colts, so no user teams got Receiver of the Year. That's too bad. Uh, Best linebacker, Mark Darden, of course. Best DB, Joshua Askew of the Browns. He's a 97 overall. He's been pretty good. And uh, Chiefs kicker Brandon Jamison, second and kicker of the year. So good job for the Chiefs. Something I know that the Packers kicker will never, ever win. It's just not possible. Uh, Over in the NFC, uh, Offensive Player of the Year, Deshaun Watson, who is a free agent, by the way. That's crazy. Defensive Player of the Year, Miles Garrett. Offensive Rookie of the Year, Phil Corcoran. Uh, He's going to have a great career. Uh, Second in voting for that was Tavares Johnson, running back for the Packers. Uh, And then fifth was Mike McAdams, uh, receiver for the Packers. At one point, those guys were 1-2-3 in the uh, Offensive Rookie of the Year voting. So exciting stuff for the Packers offense. And on defense, Julius Brackett, who I believe is a linebacker, is the Defensive Rookie of the Year for the Panthers. And then second in that voting was Eric Hayes. I don't remember what position he was, but he's also with the Panthers. Uh, So, good young players for the Panthers' defense. Uh, Any other relevant awards? Uh, Jaleel Blue, left guard for the Packers, won Offensive Lineman of the Year. Congratulations to him. And Julius Brackett won Linebacker of the Year. So, there are the relevant awards. Uh, Once again, no Coach of the Year award for Alex Munninger of the Browns. I don't believe he has won that award yet. Despite, I believe, seven Super Bowl wins and nine appearances. So, maybe a media bias against the Browns there. 
maybe we'll see some off-season articles written as to why they don't think he's ever earned that award. Um, very interesting stuff. Uh, moving on, let's get to what was next. Oh, uh, playoff recap. In the playoffs, we had, as I pull it up, Uh, we had the Chiefs winning in the wild card round and moving on to have a divisional game that I was really looking forward to watching and I didn't get to watch, and it was very disappointing because I guess it was a tremendous game. We had the Chiefs and Patriots in the divisional round, and the Chiefs pulled that out 27-24. I believe that was an overtime. The Chiefs went and scored a touchdown after the Patriots got a field goal on the first possession. Uh, so if one team kicks a field goal, then the other team... Uh, gets a chance to answer that score, uh, and no matter what, you know the clock is is no factor in the playoffs. Um, so I believe there was some confusion on that, and so the Chiefs went down and uh, they pulled that one out, and then of course the Packers and Browns both won that week against uh, pretty lame computer opponents. Uh, the championship games, <clears throat> uh, the Packers blew out the Blues. And the Chiefs and Browns, again, I don't think I got to see how this game... I think this game was force-advanced. Um, they weren't able to finish it. Uh, what I saw of it, it was a decent decent play. Uh, the Browns were clearly better. Um, but the certainly the most interesting part, uh, the funniest part, was in one of the games, uh, late in the first half... The Browns punted, and it was near the Chiefs' own goal line. Uh, the returner went back to return it and then ran away from it, and he touched it as he ran away from it. So that became a live ball on the punt, and it rolled into the end zone, and the Browns went and picked it up while everybody else was just standing and watching. So that was pretty funny. Um, in fairness to the Chiefs, it's really dumb that Madden makes the returner go back to catch punts even when they're at the goal line, or even in the end zone. Older versions of Madden, uh, if the punt was inside the 10 or so, the returner would actually run away from it, and if you wanted him to catch it, you had to make him go catch it. And he would never go into the end zone to get it. That's just dumb. I've never seen an NFL player run into the end zone to catch a punt. Um, so I don't know why that is. That's a really dumb, dumb thing that Madden kind of automatically does. But even so... Uh, you got to take control of that guy and get him out of the way if you don't want him touching the ball. So, really bad mistake, and that would have, I think, ended pretty much ended that game for the Chiefs. That made it twenty-one nothing in that game, but again, they ended up ended up playing that uh, or not playing that, just simulating that, and so the Browns moved on. And, and then we had the Super Bowl, and the Super Bowl was a a great game. Uh, two turnovers apiece for both these teams, and and they were costly for both, but. It also evened out. It would be nice for us to see one of these games just be completely clean all the way through, but that's probably never going to happen. Um, both teams moved the ball well. Both teams made some defensive plays. It was anybody's game all the way through. Great game. And this went into overtime. And in overtime, if I recall correctly, uh, the Packers picked off uh, Packers linebacker, I don't know his name, Mahoney, John Mahoney, something like that. Uh, picked off a Browns pass uh, inside the Browns 30-yard line, putting the Packers pretty much in field goal range. And they played it conservative and went ahead and went for the field goal. 
And, of course, the Browns called timeout and iced them, and they were still able to make the field goal, which was pretty shocking coming from the Packers, who have had a lot of kicking struggles. But a really tremendous moment there. Gives the Packers their second Super Bowl victory. And uh, great, great day for for Green Bay. There were riots in the street. They were burning cheese and... uh, and spraying, uh, you know, aerosol cheese everywhere, and just pouring beer. It was, it was crazy. It was about as crazy as Green Bay ever gets, uh, which is to say, not all that crazy. Um, but so Super Bowl victory celebration for the Packers uh, with a rookie quarterback and a lot of young players on their offense. Uh, this team could be pretty good for quite some time, but we will see. Uh, there are a lot of other good teams out there, and. I think the Browns are going to be getting better in the next couple of years, and I think uh, the Chiefs and Patriots both also have a lot of potential to get better. So that was the Super Bowl. Uh, Perhaps we'll have an interview with somebody related to the Packers organization on the next episode. We'll see. I'm still, still working out the booking. I have my people talking to their people. Um, so I don't want to promise anything at this point, but... I think we'll probably get a big interview with one of the champions there. Uh, Now let's move on and talk a little bit more about zone blocking. I know everyone's been very interested in uh, what we've been learning about that during the podcast, so I want to talk a little bit about the origins of zone blocking. Now, when you're looking into the origins of certain schemes or formations or whatever uh, in football, it's not all definitive. It's it's very hazy. Oftentimes, it's kind of an amalgamation of, you know, this guy came up with this concept, this guy came up with this concept, and sooner or later, they kind of got meshed together, and oh, all of a sudden, we have a West Coast offense, or something like that. Um, it's not as easy as, hey, the Wright brothers invented airplanes, basically. Um, but I, I think zone blocking is one of the more interesting ones. Uh, because a lot of people tend to think it developed in the 80s or 90s. Really, it's been around much, much longer than that. Um, that's just when it became a lot more common. But, and if you don't remember what zone blocking is, maybe you need to go back and listen to one of the older podcasts. But it's basically this idea that the blockers, instead of blocking a man, they're going to block an area. And as they block that area, they're going to work together. If anyone is kind of overlapping in two blockers' area, they'll double-team him until they move him into one guy's area or the other guy's area, and then that guy will go get the next defender that's that's close to him. Um, <clears throat> and it was developed because when football, for a long time, for 50 years of football or so, players would pretty much all line up in the same spot. They'd all get in a three-point stance. And the guy in front of them was the guy they were going to block, and that's just how it was. And that guy across from him, he knew he was going to get blocked by that guy. He had to beat that guy, he had to go get to the ball carrier. And it was pretty simple, really. And what began to happen uh, was the defenses got more complicated. And where the the origin of a lot of these innovations kind of come from one place. And this is the 1950s New York Giants. By the, uh, and their coach was named, I believe, Jim Lee Howell, or maybe Jerry Lee Howell. No, Jerry Lee is the name of Jerry Lee Lewis. That would not be a football player or a coach. 
uh, Jim Wee Howell. That was the name of the coach for the Giants. And uh, he used to joke that his primary job on the team was to make sure that the balls had air in them. Because on his coaching staff, he had an offensive coordinator by the name of Vince Lombardi and a defensive coordinator by the name of Tom Landry. If those names sound familiar, it's because they're both in the Hall of Fame, and one of them has the Super Bowl trophy named after him. And Jim Lee Howell had these two assistant coaches, and he would let them go head-to-head in practice all the time. And in their efforts to beat one another, they would innovate and they would change things because they were both exceptionally good at training their players and then coming up with new schemes. And it's a really interesting kind of rivalry because, you know, they were on the same team for the Giants. And then for more than a decade after that, they coached against each other uh, as head coaches of NFL teams with the Cowboys and Packers uh, who played each other in the playoffs a number of times. But this Giants team in the 50s, uh, after going, I don't remember what it was, uh, 3-11 and or I don't remember how many games they played then, uh, they hired Jim Lee Howell and he brought in Landry and Lombardi. And Vince Lombardi, uh, who coached at West Point, I believe, had a very militaristic approach to his offense. And by the way, so did Tom Landry. Tom Landry served in the United States Air Corps. Uh, But Lombardi was one of the first coaches to take the idea of drilling something over and over and over again and make it a mainstay of his practices. Um, certainly that's a military thing, drilling something over and over and over again. So he would do that primarily with blocking assignments. And he also came up with the idea of, hey, we don't have to run the ball into this one spot, just this one spot, and tell all our blockers, hey, we're blocking so it can go into this one spot. You're blocking that guy that's right in front of you, and you just try to block him away from the spot that we're running. He pioneered the idea of taking the blockers and telling them, I'm going to give you some rules. First rule is if there's a man inside shade on you, you block him first. Then if there's not, you're going to block you know, the linebacker and so on and so forth. He'd come up with basically rules-based blocking is what it was called. So you're not doing the same thing every single play. You're going to look at the defense. You're going to think a little bit and make adjustments. And then he would tell his running back, this is where we think the play's going to go. But if not, we're going to have everybody blocked you look for other holes. You run to daylight. He would call it run to daylight. It's a term coaches still use today. Uh, and it became very difficult because defenses back then uh, oftentimes had a bunch of guys at the line of scrimmage. And the guys that weren't at the line of scrimmage, wherever the running back was going, they would all sprint there and they would mob the ball. Um, and so one of the ways Lombardi was able to get open space was running backs would make cutbacks. And you couldn't mob the ball anymore. You needed to stay Stay home in your spot in case the ball cut back. And defenses weren't doing that yet, but Tom Landry taught them to because he had to stop Vince Lombardi's offense in practice all week. Uh, and another another thing Lombardi did, or uh, excuse me, Tom Landry did, to deal with Vince Lombardi's offense, which was only about a dozen plays, but they ran them really, really well, was Tom Landry took what was typically a five-man defensive front And he moved one of those linemen back off the ball, and he created the 4-3 defense. And he put a middle linebacker back there to run to the ball. He said, you got to find the ball, you got to read the offense, and everybody else has got to fill gaps. It was really the first time it had ever been done. 
Um, and then as time went on, and especially as he went on to his days as coach with the Cowboys, he started shifting his line right before the snap of the ball or slanting them or stunting them, trying to make uh, it very difficult for the very rigorously trained Lombardi offenses uh, to block his guys. And so Vince Lombardi took this rules-based blocking idea, and he took it one step further, and he said, let's double-team every guy here until we figure out where he's trying to go, where he's slanting, where he's stunting, uh, and then we'll take the guy that doesn't need to block him anymore, and we'll peel that guy off to the second level. And that is, in simplistic terms, how zone blocking works. So, in essence, the origins of zone blocking, the origins of the 4-3 defense, and the origins of defensive stunts, twists, slants, all those sorts of things, they all come from this time when these two Hall of Fame coaches were going head-to-head in practice every day and innovating. Now, zone blocking... Uh, becoming its own real concept happened about 20 years later in the 80s when a coach by the name of Alex Gibbs uh, became the offensive line coach for the Bengals and then later, as he's more famously known for, became the offensive line coach for the Denver Broncos under Mike Shanahan. Um, And that was when they took this idea of rules-based blocking and they just applied it wholesale to their entire scheme. We're just, every play, we're going to have these rules. They're going to be simple. We're not going to pull people a lot. We're just going to say, let's use these rules to make sure we have everybody blocked on every single play. And it became very effective. And and Alex Gibbs really gets a lot of credit for quote-unquote inventing zone blocking. But what he really did was he turned it into an overall guiding idea for a scheme uh, more than just kind of using it as a concept as Lombardi did. And so nowadays, you can see this happen on every play, zone blocking rules are used on pretty much every play, even if it's not called a zone play. Uh, so if you're watching football and you see, you know, the guard in the center start to double team a guy and then the guard comes off of that double team and he goes, you know, he keeps moving in the same general direction he was and he goes to the linebacker and he blocks that guy. That's a, a zone blocking concept in action right there. Um, and so it's just really fun, I think, to see how these things happen. Um, and you know, if there's any team I could go and just, I would love to just be at their practices every single day. I think it would be that 50s Giants team where these two coaches were creating so much of the football we see today as they went, just trying to beat each other. Uh, So that's a little bit, that's by no means an exhaustive history of zone blocking. Um, But I thought it was kind of interesting to go over. And uh, if you liked it, maybe we can go over more history of of football concepts uh, in the future. Um, Or we'll go back to going over coverages like the cover nine or silly things like that. Or we can do a little bit of both. Uh, So anyway, that's zone blocking. Uh, To finish up, we're going to do a real quick draft preview, which means there's a draft probably today, and we will be picking players. And if you would like to know more, I'll just tell you this real quick. Uh, The Packers have two first-round picks, 14 and 29. They also have two seconds and two-thirds. The Panthers have two first-round picks. They have the 12th and the 15th. And they also have two seconds and two-thirds and two-fourths. The Patriots pick 6th and 10th, so two first-round picks for them as well. We'll check out, I think the Browns have the number one pick. 
They do, so the defending AFC champions have the first pick and the 31st pick, and then a second-round pick, and then they don't pick again until the fifth round, at least at this point. That could still change, I'm sure. And the Chiefs are picking fourth and third, and then they have one pick in all the rest of the rounds of the draft. So two first-round picks for everybody in the league. It'll be interesting to see how that turns out. First pick going to the Browns. We'll see who they take. We know they don't need a quarterback. So I think we're looking for probably an offensive weapon here. Maybe, I I can't think of anybody they would take on defense unless there's just a stud pass rusher and they feel like they could plug them in somewhere. But I think we're looking for an offensive weapon there. And uh, I'm not going to guess anybody else's pick. So that'll be the podcast for today. Until next time, remember, if someone says to you life is hard, just ask them, in comparison to what?